Well, as I said in a previous sermon or sermons, now that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians has been restored, he turns his attention uh, to a collection that was started over a year before in Corinth, and that collection was to help the poor, suffering saints in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians had said, we want to help, and we are committed to helping. And they actually began to help, but then they stopped. And that was most likely because of their rift with Paul and probably their own procrastination. And when Paul sent his severe letter, remember he sent them a letter to call them on their sin and call them to repent, one of the things he asked Titus to do, who carried the letter to them, was if they did repent, to remind them to pick up where they left off, uh, which was to hopefully stir them up again to follow through on their promise to give to this collection to the Jerusalem saints. And we see from verse 6 that Paul urged Titus to do this when he was there. Well, Paul wants to motivate the Corinthians to give as they said they would give, uh, and what he does in verses 1 to 5 is he gives them an example of the Macedonians' givings, uh, who had every reason not to give, for we read they were greatly afflicted for their faith. We read they were in deep poverty. Uh, and if anyone should be exempt from giving, one would think that the, mo that the Macedonians would be exempt from it because uh, they, had, they had nothing. Uh, but because they had first given themselves to the Lord, and because of their abundant joy in the Lord, uh, they gave to the Jerusalem saints with a generous and rich heart. And not that they gave a lot, but they gave according to their ability. A and all of this was because, first and foremost, the grace of God, which was given to them. I, I mean, the, the churches could have taken an offering for the poor, suffering saints in Macedonia. But they wouldn't have any of that. No. They wouldn't have it. Christ so owned their hearts and their lives that he also owned their money. Uh, and they would not forgo the joy and the blessing and the fellowship of participating in this offering to the saints in Jerusalem. In fact, they pleaded with Paul to let them give because Paul was like, you know what? You guys don't need to give. No, we beg you, Paul, take our money. So in verses 1 to 5, Paul tells us how the Macedonians gave, gave and that was descriptive. And now in verse 6, there's a shift from speaking about how the Macedonians gave to now how the Corinthians and the church for all time should give, so it's prescriptive. Hence, the pronouns go from they and them to now you and your. And I would like to look today at verses 7 to 9 in a sermon titled, He Became Poor, and give you three reasons from the text, three reasons the Corinthians should be generous givers. Three reasons. First reason, because giving is a part of growing. Secondly, because giving is a proof of genuineness. And finally, because giving is the heart of the Lord. So let's look at the first reason, because giving is a part of growing. Verse 7, again, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Well, Paul wants to show the Corinthians that giving is a grace, just like every other grace or ability or virtue in the Christian life. And every believer should be growing 
in every grace that God gives. We should all be growing in them. Uh, and, and so giving is a grace, is a grace that we should be growing in. Thus he says, listen, you abound in all kinds of graces. You are a spiritually hungry congregation. You are zealous for spiritual gifts. And you are growing in many spiritual disciplines. So make giving one of them. Make giving one of them. And notice Paul will put giving on equal par, if you will, with graces such as faith and speech and knowledge and diligence uh, and love. And maybe you never thought of giving as a grace. Uh, and, and maybe you never considered giving as important as other graces. Uh, but it is. Therefore, it shouldn't be neglected. So st Paul starts by saying, as you abound in everything. And abound means to excel, to exceed a fixed number or a measure, to have an abundance. To have an abundance. Uh, and he's used this word three times in this letter. Uh, and, and the last time was just five verses before when he said the abundance of the Macedonians joy with their afflictions and deep poverty, here's the word, overflowed, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Well, what the Corinthians abound in is first of all faith. And, and faith is sanctifying trust uh, in the Lord. And this could be uh, faith in Christ. Or more likely, it could, be, it could be the faith associated with the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, which is wonder-working faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 9, concerning the gifts of the Spirit, we read, to another, faith is given by the same Spirit. Paul said in chapter 13 uh, of, of 1 Corinthians, he said, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Uh, and this gift of faith is probably the belief that God can do and will act uh, in, in a particular situation. The next grace uh, the Corinthians abounded in was speech, speech. And the word speech in the Greek is the word logos, uh, which means to speak with words. The King James renders it utterance. Uh, and this could, uh, this could cover the gift of prophecy in tongues, which they were certainly hot for, or interpretation of tongues. Or the word of wisdom, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, then, he's, then Paul says that they abounded in the grace of knowledge. Knowledge signifies understanding in spiritual things, in spiritual truth. Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And this knowledge may be given, uh, may be given to impart prophecies or wisdom. Uh, and we see that the Corinthians were gifted in speech and knowledge. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul said that they were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. Paul said to the saints in Rome, in Romans 15, 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. Well, then Paul moves from spiritual gifts onto their behavior or responses, and he says they abound in the grace of diligence. Diligence means with haste, with earnestness. Right, it's a striving after something. Uh, and he said to the Corinthians, we're diligent back in chapter 7, 
uh, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians after they repented for sinning against Paul. He said, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner with diligence it produced in you. With diligence. And what a diligence produced in you. So diligence is what every Christian should have, particularly uh, to use their gifts and to excel in the grace that God has given them. Uh, and the last grace they abounded in is in their love for us. So now their love for Paul is bounded again, like it did when they were first saved and he spent 18 months with them. Paul prayed in Philippians 1.9 that the Philippians' love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Uh, so the Corinthians abounded in many graces. And Paul then says, see that you abound in this grace also. And this grace, of course, is the grace of giving. That's the context here. Uh, you see, the Corinthians were kind of like lopsided Christians, if you will. They were out of balance. Right? They were heavy on faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and love, but they were light on giving. It's kind of like the guy who goes to the gym every day uh, and, he, and he only works out his arms and his chest. That's all he ever does. Arms and chest. And his arms and chest, they get really built up. Very strong, very muscular, bulky, strong. But his legs, they're stringy. They're bony. Look like two matchsticks because he doesn't work those out. Or it's like the chef. The chef that only cooks fried foods. So he's a master, or she's a master of fried chicken, fried calamari, fried something else, whatever you like. Uh, but they're useless at roasting and baking and grilling. So you see, the, Christi the, the Corinthians, uh, they're out of balance. And Paul wants them and the church for all time to be balanced. He wants the saints giving in Corinth to be in harmony with other Christian virtues that Paul has already recognized in them. So see that you abound in the grace of giving. I mean, how odd is it if you're growing in all other graces and not in giving? And listen, we should want to grow in the grace of giving. Right? Not so that we would just give more, but that we would trust and depend on God more. And like the Macedonians, our, our giving would be would be a great joy and a privilege and a fellowship that we would want to participate in. Thus, we need to do an inventory on our giving. We need to keep checking our hearts to see if we're growing in this grace. Are you growing in the grace of giving? For when you were first saved to today, however long that's been, are you growing in this grace? Like hopefully you were growing in every other grace. Are we growing? Are you giving according to your ability? Are you giving according to your ability? And that is 2 Corinthians 9, 7 will says, are we giving generously and sacrificially and cheerfully, knowing that God is able to make all grace abound to us? So Paul's argument here is, since you are so wonderfully gifted by God, you ought to want to grow in the grace of giving and give back to him more and more. One man said this, an ungenerous Christian is far from being a complete Christian. So the first reason Christians should be generous givers is because giving is a part of growing. The second reason Christians should be generous givers is because giving is a proof of genuineness. Giving is a proof of genuineness. Verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love 
by the diligence of others. Well, Paul reminds them of the grace of God in their lives in so many different ways and calls them to grow in the grace of giving. Forgiving is just as important as those other graces. Uh, and now he will ease their fears, and maybe some of ours as well, by letting them know that giving is not a commandment. Giving is not a commandment here. Right? Rather, he says, it's a test of the genuineness of their love. And he's doing that through the example of the Macedonians. So then it, this is not a command. For a command places someone under law. But grace, but grace giving is, is freely giving or giving freely of one's own will and one's own choice. Uh, so Paul is not commanding but rather reminding the Corinthians. He wants them to be motivated by the grace of God and their love to give and not by law or obligation. Uh, for Paul knew that, that giving from a commandment is not really, really giving at all, but rather, as someone said, it's more like taxation. I got to do this. You got to pay your taxes. A- and it is usually wiser and more effective to appeal for change by citing positive examples rather than making authoritative commands. So Paul doesn't have to command the Corinthians to give. Uh, for they are constrained by the love of God. It it was the love of Christ that compelled Paul to suffer all things for Jesus' sake and to spend and be spent for the sake of souls and to give his life fully to Christ for the advancement of his kingdom. You know, no one has to tell you or I, no one has to tell us to sacrifice for our children. No one has to tell us to sacrifice for our family. No one does. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll deny ourselves whatever it is for our family, for their sakes. And no one should have to tell you or I to willingly sacrifice for the Lord or his church or his people. When you are overcome by the love of God for you and the grace of God in your life, you can't help but be more like the Macedonians. When the love of God has so gripped your heart, when you are so overwhelmed, like that last song we sang, which was basically bathed in in biblical theology of the cross, when you are so overwhelmed that he loves you, you can't help but love him back. And that comes out in, in all kinds of ways, all kinds of graces. When you are overwhelmed by his love for you, you can't help but be more like the Macedonians. So God is not commanding us to give in the new covenant. In the old covenant, there was, there was mandatory giving required of the Jews as well as free will offerings. But in the new covenant, it's all free will giving. We've been freely given and God wants us to freely give back. Didn't cost you anything for your salvation. It was grace. Grace means gift, right? You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't somehow measure up for it. God gave it freely. He wants us to freely give back to him. He wants us to freely give back to him. And if, and if giving were commanded in the new covenant, then it, it couldn't be and it wouldn't be from the heart. It would be an obligation, something that we would be bound by. But in the new covenant, guess what God wants? He wants us. He wants the heart. He wants the life. And if he has the heart and he has the life, then like the Macedonians, We will first give ourselves to the Lord 
and then freely giving him of our resources, then that won't be a burden. In fact, it'll be a joy. It'll be a joy. So Paul says, I'm not giving you a commandment here, but what I am doing is testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. And testing means to examine, uh, to prove the worth of something. So then, so then test your sincerity when it comes to giving. And the word sincerity literally means legitimately born. It means true. It means genuine. Paul said in Philippians 4.3, And I urge you also, here's the word, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. True companion. Sincerity. So Paul wants them to see if their love for God and their love for the saints is as sincere as they may believe it is. It's easy to say we love the saints. It's easy to say we'll pray for them. Be filled, be warmed, right? We could say that. It's easy to do that. But the sincerity of one's love is often seen in actions. It's seen in giving. And did not God show his love in giving? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How do we know God loves us? A lot of reasons. First and foremost, though, that, that he gave his son to die for us, to trade places with us, to suffer the penalty that we deserve, to pour his spirit out on us. He gave. And did not God show his love by giving in every single way? In Romans 8.32 it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's giving us all things. He's given us his son and all things follow that. Spiritual things first and foremost. So God is a giver. And his people should be as well. And giving can measure the sincerity of our love. And some of us would like to think that, that we can love without giving. I love you, man, I love you. And we just say the words. I hope it's true. But the reality is we show it in giving. The scriptures tell us that. We read today in 1 John 3.17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and need is a critical word, it means necessities for living. Sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. James 2, 14 and 16. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, necessities of life, and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be filled, be warmed, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? How is that loving? Right? Well, it doesn't profit anything. And it's not loving. It's not loving a brother or a sister. In 1 Peter 1.22, we read, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently, fervently, and with a pure heart. And that word means like stretch the neck, stretching it out. 
Go the extra yard. Labor hard to love. And sincerely loving them with a pure heart is to love them like God loves them and to be a giver. And as Proverbs 19.17 says, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. So in essence, you're using God's stuff which he has made you a steward of or an overseer of to bless others which in the end will bless you. Which in the end will bless you. So the issue here is we can say we love but if we sincerely love others, if we sincerely love the church, then giving to them will become more and more natural to us. And our sincerity will be evidenced by our willingness to give what the Lord has given us. You see, the, the true test of sincere love is not your emotions, not your feelings, but your actions. You're serving, you're witnessing, you're discipling, you're giving, and so on. So then giving is a way to test your love. Now the third reason the Corinthians should be generous givers is because giving is the heart of the Lord. Giving is the heart of the Lord. Verse 9. This is a powerful verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why? That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Powerful verse right here. Right? The, great, the greatest example of giving here is not the Macedonians, although humanly speaking, they are really a good example and should be, should be imitated. But the greatest example of giving is the Lord Jesus Christ. And truly, this verse is the gospel. It is another way of saying what Paul has already said back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which is the gospel in a sentence which is, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what Paul does now is use doctrine to stir up generosity of heart. He uses theology to motivate practical living. Uh, For to give is to be Christ-like. For his whole life was spent giving. And Paul starts by saying, for you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Corinthians knew this and a lot of other biblical truths because Paul taught them. He made sure they learned critical doctrines, doctrines like the atonement of Christ, like the incarnation of Christ and his two natures in one person. Uh, So they knew about penal substitution. It was a legal payment that had to be made for our sins. Christ swapped places with us and paid the price for us. They understood that. They understood about God's wrath being satisfied in Christ. Well, that big word that Jose used, propitiation, satisfaction. God's, God's anger was appeased because Christ took the punishment for us. They understood that. They knew about the great exchange that took place on the cross that the just one died for the unjust, that, that by his blood, our sin debt was washed away. So they knew the nuts and the bolts of the gospel. They knew the mechanics of the cross. And how many professing believers there are today 
who really have no clue about these things. I marvel when I go out and evangelize with, with the brethren. I meet people that tell me they're Christians. They honestly don't understand what it even means to be born again. I'm not faulting them. But if they're really saved, they're sitting under some really bad teaching. They don't know the cross. It's the cross that gives us hope. It's the cross that gives us strength. It's the, horse, the cross that helps us persevere. Right? When we struggle, we look up. We remember the glories of Calvary. It's the cross. So many, so many don't understand. They know Jesus died for their sins, they'll tell you, but they don't understand how. They don't understand why. They don't grasp that he paid their hell on the cross, literally in his own body for three hours. They don't understand that. That he silenced the wrath of God by taking it on himself for us. They don't understand the great cost it was for Jesus, but the Corinthians did. They knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for they had experienced his grace in their lives. And Paul was thankful for it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you. Why, Paul? Why do you thank for them, for God for them? For the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. So thankful that God had put grace upon grace upon them. Remember the word grace means gift. It means gift, unmerited favor. And the grace of our Lord Jesus is that he gave himself for us. And the Corinthians knew they were saved by grace through faith. And, and, that, and that grace came through Jesus. They knew, as, one, as John chapter 1.14 said, that Jesus was the word of God and the son of God and that he was full of grace and truth. And that from his fullness, as verse 16 says, we have all received grace upon grace. And the grace of our Lord Jesus is that he gave himself for us. And that he lived a holy and sinless life to save us and to give us a righteousness, a right standing that God accepts. Because he's never going to accept us by us. We do not have a right standing before God. No one is righteous, not even one. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Nobody measures up. But he sent his son to measure up for us. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We sang, we're robed, clothed in his righteousness. Uh, they understood the grace of our Lord Jesus, that he gave himself for us. That he was born into this world and took on our nature to save us. Uh, and that he lived a holy, sinless life again to save us. And to give us a righteousness that was acceptable to God. And he died bearing our sins to save us. So they knew that they were justified freely by his grace. Romans 3.24 They knew that, that grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ. Romans 5.21 They knew the riches of God's grace and kindness came through the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2.7 Which is why we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2 Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in his grace. Well, what they know about the grace of Jesus is that though he was rich, for your sakes, he became poor. And the question is, how is Jesus rich? How is Jesus rich? Are we talking, are we talking about his time on earth? Because 
if we are, that really doesn't make sense. He didn't own anything here, and he certainly didn't live in luxury, right? Not like some of the hucksters today, a lot of jewelry, fine clothes, and the whole thing, right? Well, that wasn't him. But he was rich in his person. He was rich in spiritual and eternal things. He was rich in that he was the second person of the triune Godhead. Godhead, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. And as the Son of God, he possessed all the attributes and characteristics of the Father. And he was rich in communion and fellowship with the Father. And he was rich in his power and in his sovereignty and in his wisdom and in his knowledge and in his majesty. And so he was rich as the Father is rich, who who has infinite riches. So does the Son, for he too is God. And make no mistake, this verse tells us that Jesus is God. For he was rich, was rich. He didn't become rich at some point in time. He was always rich. Why? He's always God. No beginning and no end. He told the Jews in John 8, 58, Most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. I am God. I am the self-existent one. I am the eternal one. He said in John 10 that he and the Father were one. He told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at me. Paul said in Colossians 2.9, for in him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the attributes of God are in the person Jesus, the God-man. We read in Hebrews 1.3 that he is the express image of of God the Father. So Jesus was rich. And Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So Jesus created the universe. Jesus owns the universe. He owns every single nook and cranny of it. Every speck of dust that's floating in the universe, that's his. And by the way, he's ordaining how it floats. And besides all that, he is rich because the angels worship him and adore him. Isaiah 6.3 says they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the wealth of the Lord Jesus is beyond comparison. It is infinite. It cannot be added to, nor could it be subtracted. Nor could it be subtracted. Did you know that there are 22 million millionaires in the U.S.? I don't think any of us sitting here are one of those, but there are 22 million millionaires in the United States. And if you were to combine every nickel of every one of those 22 million millionaires, wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of the Lord Jesus' wealth. Well, Paul says, though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. Now we have to ask, how did he become poor? Like, how did he become impoverished? And many commentators will direct you to his poverty while he was here on earth. They'll say he was born in a stable, kind of a low place to be born. He was uh, slept in an animal throw. His parents didn't have much at all. Uh, and that Mary and Joseph couldn't even afford the normal purification offering 
uh, after Mary gave birth, which was a lamb. But if you couldn't afford the lamb, you could give two young pigeons, uh, which were pretty worthless, which is exactly what Mary and Joseph did. They will also cite what Jesus said in Luke 9. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, and that he was supported mainly by the giving of others. Uh, and that he couldn't afford to pay the temple taxes. We see in Matthew 17. So Jesus says, go out, Peter, go out, cast the line. The first fish that you catch is going to have money in it. That's our temple tax. He couldn't afford it. They'll tell you he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. And that at his death, he only had the clothes on his back, which, by the way, the soldiers gambled for. Uh, and then he had to use another man's grave. He didn't own one. And all of these things are true. But they're not what Paul means here. They're not what he means when he says Jesus became poor. No, what he means when he says Jesus became, more, became poor is that Jesus became a man. He became a man. Uh, what he is talking about is the incarnation that Christ set aside or veiled his deity, if you will, or his glory uh, uh, for 30 some odd years when he took on flesh. But he never stopped being God. He never stopped. God can't cease to be. He never stopped being God. He never lost his divine attributes because that would be an impossibility. God can't stop being God. But he put them behind the curtain, so to speak, so that people didn't notice them for a while, which is why men only saw him as a man, which is why they hated him and eventually crucified him. Uh, so he left the glory he had with the Father for all eternity to come down and become one of us. The night before his crucifixion, he prayed in John 17, 5, in his high priestly prayer. He said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Restore that glory. So his glory was interrupted while he fulfilled his mission of redemption. So he lowered himself to the very bottom of the barrel, if you will, by taking on flesh. And this was voluntary. This was the desire of his heart. Uh, and, and it was in perfect agreement with his father. So, as Galatians 4.4 4 says, his poverty was that he was born of a woman. His poverty, as Romans 8.3 says, was that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. His poverty, as Hebrews 2.7 says, he was made lower than the angels. And as 1 Timothy 3.16 says, that he was manifested in the flesh. And we see this clearly in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, uh, which we read today, which, which says that though he, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So please notice, please notice who Jesus became poor for, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, yet for your sakes he became poor. He didn't do it for his sake. He didn't do it for the Father's sake, for your sake. So Jesus did what he did. He left heaven, left the worship of angels, left perfect communion with the Father to live among the people he created to rescue his sheep, to rescue his elect, to rescue his church, 
his bride from the penalty of their sin and from the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin to crush the serpent's head and to set the captives free. He did it for our sakes. He did it, now get this, for a loveless, hopeless, helpless group of sinners destined for doom. That's what we were. We were on the fast path to hell. We were going down that wide road which leads to the slaughterhouse of destruction. And he came to take us off, change us on the inside and out, and put us on that narrow road which leads to glory. He did it for rebels against God and against his law. He did it for you and I. He did it for people who hated him, who fought against him. Just think of your life before you were saved. How, how high was your fist shaking against him? I will not have him to lead over me. I will not have him to tell me what I can and cannot do. Listen, the world hates the gospel. It hates the Bible because it tells them they're sinners and they don't like that. We're out sharing the gospel yesterday and there's a church out there, very seeker sensitive. They hand out a, 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 a sinner's salvation, pray this prayer card. And I got to tell you, the word sin isn't even, even on it. It's just pray this prayer and God receives you and you are saved and you have glory. Whatever happened to repent and believe in the gospel? Whatever happened? All of a sudden you can be saved and not even know you're a sinner. He did it for people who hated him, who fought against him. And some even saying, crucify him, crucify him. Do not think that if, that, if, that if we were there on the day that Jesus was walking up to the cross, that we would be saying, stop saying that. Stop saying, no, no. We would probably be saying, like the rest of the people, crucify him, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. We'd be like following every other sheep that was lost. Give us Barabbas. But what did Jesus pray when they were nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's grace and mercy. He did it for our sakes because God loves us. And he chose to save us and to give us as a bride to his son. And the son loves us because we're his bride. We're a gift. We're a gift to Jesus. And listen, no groom, no groom has ever sacrificed more than what Jesus sacrificed for his bride. Nick, I don't care how much you love Francine, you didn't sacrifice that much. I don't care. I don't, Phil, she's great, not as much. Victor, same thing. None of us sacrificed not even one billionth of what Jesus sacrificed for his bride. But he did it for us. He did it for us. Well, Paul finishes his verse with a conclusion that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You, through his poverty, might become rich. And the reason we need to be rich is because we are spiritually dirt poor. In fact, it goes past being dirt poor. We are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And quite honestly, spiritually dead people can't do anything spiritual. We just can't. We're dead sinners. And if left that way, we will die the second death, which is an eternal death. But Jesus fought our war in poverty by taking away what made us poor and filling us with his unsearchable riches. And now we are filthy rich, if you will. Now we are sons and daughters of God. 
Now we are in the family of God. Now we are kings and priests in the kingdom of God. Now we have 24-7 access to the very throne room of God, which Jesus intercedes for us. Now we are joint heirs with Christ, seated with him right now in a spiritual way in the heavenly places. And, and we've been given the very nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit, they indwell us. And we have the hope of glory. We have the hope of glory. And there is an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And we have the very word of God and every promise of God. And, and we're secure in the Lord's hand until he brings us home and to glory where we shall see him and be like him, resurrected in glory, both body and soul, together. This is how we're rich. This is how we're rich, not in an earthly sense, but in a spiritual sense. And let me say that the prosperity gospel, which is all over the place, turn on the TV, you'll see it, and you'll hear it. It is a lie from the pit of hell, and it will damn all who believe it and promote it and claim it. You know, you give five bucks, you get back 50 or 500. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not your riches here, physically, literally speaking. It's your riches in heaven. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right now, they're yours. And it's by faith that you receive them through Christ. Our riches are in Christ, in his work, because he's loved us. And Paul's point here is, is if you have these riches in Christ, if he became poor so you could become rich, then, then it ought to be a very small thing for us to want to give back to him according to our ability and even beyond our ability. So you see, it's all going, look what Christ did, look at his riches. He'll end this in chapter 9 by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How are you going to... How could we be chintzy towards God when he's loaded us up with, with eternal riches? That's basically the point. Well, let me close by telling you something to remember. This should be a great encouragement to you. Remember this, dear Christian, that in Christ, you right now are abundantly rich. You are abundantly rich, right? You are abundantly rich. You may struggle in this life to make ends meet. You may never get the house you want or the car you'd like to drive or the job you'd like to have. You may never have the resources to take some sort of elaborate or exciting vacation. Nor may you be able to afford to send your kids to one of the better colleges. Not that you want to do that today anyway, but you won't. And you may come up short on a comfortable retirement, but here's the truth. You are rich in Christ. Uh, and, and you are rich in Christ because the day he saved you, the very day he regenerated you, when you became born again, all of his riches were on you. He lavished on you more than you can ever comprehend. And by the way, he did it because he loves you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You're not better than anybody else. No one is. Gives it freely. He lavished it on you because he loves you. And he's given you eternal life and glory with him forever and all the benefits that come with that. So you need to see yourself as rich rich in spiritual things, rich in kingdom things, rich in things that count. Now the world may, may look at you and say, you're not rich at all. Your family may think you're just an impoverished fool. But the Lord says, you're rich. You're rich. 
Now, because you're rich in Christ, because you've been made rich by the poverty of Christ, then take heed to verse 7 and see that you abound in the grace of giving. Uh, see that you give according to your means and pray that you can give and give beyond that. See that you first give yourself to the Lord uh, and, then, and then to the work of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, let us not be lopsided believers right, who excel in many Christian virtues and graces and giftings, but we are weak and lack in the grace of giving. Now let me end with a question to all. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know it? The Corinthians knew it. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus? And I'm not asking if you know him. I'm not asking if you know who he is or what he's done or what the gospel says about him. I'm asking if you know him personally. Do you know him experientially? From his grace. And particularly, do you know his saving grace? Do you know his saving grace? Have you been given the gift of eternal life? Have you been given the gift of the new birth? Have you been saved by grace through faith? If you haven't, then you are a spiritually poor person. And in reality, you're a spiritually dead person. And the only one who can bring you to spiritual life, the only one who could grant you forgiveness of your sins and thus have peace with God is Christ. And if you recognize that your sins have separated you from God, made you an alien from God and from his kingdom, and you recognize that God will condemn you for your sins, and he will, and you cry out to Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, to forgive you of your sins, he will forgive you. He'll forgive you. And then his poverty, and that'll make you eternally rich. Amen? Don't let it go. Don't walk out of here a spiritually dead person. Cry out for mercy. Cry out for grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just praise you. Thank you, Lord, that you would send your son who would leave glory who would leave the riches of, of glory with you to come here, to become one of us, to go, as it were, to the bottom of the barrel so that he could save us, so that we could be rich in spiritual things and have the riches of eternal life. Father, I pray as your people that we would hold tightly to that, that we would believe that, that it would help us as we struggle through this life. I pray that we would grow in the grace of giving, reminding us, Lord, that whatever we have, you've given anyway. It's all yours. Help us to be good stewards, generous stewards, loving others around us and loving the church. Uh, Lord, would you'll grow whether we give to it or not, but Lord, let us be faithful to give. And Lord, for the soul or souls sitting here this day don't truly know the grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would drive them to Calvary and to the cross. I pray, oh God, you would show them they have a tremendous need, an eternal need that can only be met by Christ, and that they would cry out and that they would find life and that they would be granted the riches of eternal glory and every other spiritual blessing that comes now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.